Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Let's bring in Leslie Falconio, Senior Fixed Income Strategist at UBS Global Wealth Management. Nearly a trillion dollars in assets under management firm-wide, including family office assets. So Leslie really has a great view of where people are putting their money, where flows are going, and what families are doing versus what institutions are doing. So Leslie, talk to us first about those flows. Have we seen much of anything change hands recently? Is there a sort of an area that certain uh, certain um, demographics or what have you are moving towards? Yeah, I mean, right now, obviously, we still have this, in our, in our opinion, a little bit too much cash on hands that we think investors have. But I think to your point, you know, as we know, especially the fixed income side, it's, it's the search for yield. And in order to, to really gain, you know, decent yield and decent return going forward, you have to sort of look into, at, the, at the alternative market. And that's where right now a lot of people are sort of allocating because of this, the stimulus that we've seen, because of all the central bank support and because of the liquidity, that people who have a little bit longer time horizon are really sort of picking their spots at areas that have been hit due to this crisis. So although people, in our opinion, still have a little bit too much cash, they are starting to allocate to some of these alternative investments. When you say alternative investments, give us a, a little more detail on where, you know, sure. where in the market. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, if, if, let's just say things like commercial real estate. Okay, we know that the commercial real estate area has actually has had obviously, you know, a, a lot of points of concern, particularly those pockets of vulnerability, whether it's office space, you know, hotels, you know, all those all those sort of areas that have really been a prob- problematic area that have not recovered yet. But the market is forecasting such high levels of delinquencies that right now there are alternatives that allow investors to really get involved for if they have a longer term time horizon and they're willing to to forego a bit of liquidity, there are these pockets of opportunity because the market is pricing in such negativity. That's really interesting because, you know, we hear so much about some of these businesses going going away, you know, hotels in particular. So is there a big premium to these investments? There are. I mean, and, actually, and you're absolutely right. I mean, that's why you really need to pick your spots and you really need to do your due diligence. But as, an, as, as opportunistic sort of as the opportunity set, particularly within fixed income and and has dissipated, it's really gotten light. When you look at things like CMBS, CRE, those there are pockets of opportunities there if you do your due diligence that are actually for the longer term. We believe, particularly because we do believe a fiscal stimulus is coming, because we do believe there's, a, there's the Fed and the government is, is a great backstop, we'll be able to recover. Not, not everywhere, but so you really need to pick your spots. But given you're in an environment where you've had such great returns in equity and even a lot of recovery in fixed income, the opportunities are very small. So if you pick your spots, then over the longer term, you know, you have really good returns. So the market... It's looking like it's anticipating a Biden victory right now. Is it too complacent, Leslie? You know, honestly, I think it is a bit too complacent. And and I'll tell you why. If you look at things like the credit market, let's just look at the credit market, for example. Triple C high yield spreads are at pre-COVID levels. Okay, The, the credit market spreads are right now are incredibly, incredibly tight. And you're really not getting compensated a tremendous amount for a fat tell event, whether it's up or down. So I do think the market is a bit complacent. It is assuming this Biden suite. 
And, you know, over the longer term, I think what the market really needs to focus on is the fact that the curve is steeping, you know, yields are a bit higher, but more importantly, that cushion that you once had is pretty much gone. Can you elaborate a little bit? Um, you yeah, know, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, so for example, so if you, like I said, the triple C side, like, right, if you have things like, you know, is, is now these, at pre-COVID spreads, and a lot of this issuance that we're seeing are in triple Cs, and as we know, you know, a lot of these companies have sort of been riding the coattail of the Fed liquidity. You know, when we look at things like, say, for example, just a basic investment-grade corporate, which has been a great backstop for the Fed, the Fed has bought investment-grade corporates, it has a lot of powder dry to do more, but you as a, as a corporate, if you go into corporates right now, you have only maybe 20 basis points rise in interest rates where you wipe out a whole year of income. You don't have a lot of spread cushion there to really, you know, compensate you if, in fact, you get more defaults in both investment grade and high yield. Okay, so Leslie, can I ask you as well about, you know, outside of the US, you know, there's a lot of talk about Asia these days, and I suppose emerging markets more generally, though China, we sort of treat a little bit separately. What are you doing there, particularly given the the strengthening in the yuan recently? Yeah, we we do feel for those investors that are looking for that yield, and when we talk about high yield, for example, that we feel is a little bit more tight in the US, you can go over to Asia high yield and actually pick up a nice, a, a a nice yield at like six, seven percent. We do think the Asian the Asian market is actually on a road to recovery. A little bit more inflation that they have, obviously the backstop of the central bank, and we do think that the PMIs, although volatile overall, we expect a nice recovery there. So our preference for those that are really that are yield seekers that believe that the U.S. is just simply a bit too tight, Asia high yield is another alternative that you could invest in. All right, Leslie, thank you. So interesting to speak with you. One final question, if you don't mind. Families that have great wealth, are they trying to do something with that before there is a change in administration, assuming that there is? Yeah, I mean, listen, look, tax loss harvesting is always always, always a big thing to do, and I'm sure that there, there, there are families that are trying to allocate in terms of potential changes. But, you know, and frankly, our view is that even if we do have a democratic sweep, it's not going to be the first thing on the agenda to go changing taxes. It's just not. The economy is the first on the agenda. Jobs are the first on the agenda. You know, and make sure, and having, you know, corporations remain, and sustainability of corporations on the agenda. So although, yes, they are, it's just not going to be on day one that they, this, this change is going to occur. It's going to occur over, over time. Yeah, that's for sure. Okay, Leslie, thank you. We'll be talking to you again well before then. Leslie Falconio is Senior Strategist at UBS Global Wealth Management. All right, now it is time to turn to the world of commercial banking. And for that, we bring in a specialist. We have Don McCree, Head of Commercial Banking at Citizens Bank. Don, what does your job involve primarily these days in pandemic times? Well, it's really taking care of our clients, Fani. Um, you know, right at the beginning of... Um, the pandemic, we, we actually said our, our primary job is to help our clients get through this really unprecedented events. And that, you know, started with the PPP loans. It started with the provision of a lot of liquidity lines, uh, some restructuring of credit agreements. And we're really encouraged by what we're seeing. We're seeing uh, some real bright spots in the portfolio. There's obviously some real trouble in certain industries, but, uh, but you know, so far, so good. You must have had an internal conversation about what the criteria might be, what the lines in the sand might be, what industries you are willing to be more lenient on than others. How did that conversation go? 
Well, you know, what, what we really did was we immediately undertook what we call a cash burn analysis on our client base, and we really threw out history and went to what current cash flow was versus current cash resources and tried to project forward three, six, 12 months to see how long a company, you know, had before it ran into a real liquidity problem. And then we, we actually took a variety of different actions against those different scenarios and, and really tried to bolster the companies to get to the other end of the, ban- the pandemic. We we, de- we don't have any red line industries in terms of things that we, the places that we won't help. We certainly have some that are in a little bit more difficulty than others. So anything that's in the hospitality sector or the restaurant sector or the leisure sector is obviously experiencing uh, a fair amount of distress right now. But um, but the, the broad portfolio looks like it's stabilizing. How do you avoid some of your clients being aided by other, you know, maybe shadow banking type entities. Is there a way that you can hold on to them? Or are you actually quite happy for some of these, you know, private equity companies or what have you to to take on some clients that might be underperforming? We haven't we haven't seen a lot of that. You know what we what we have seen is is some distressed investments. For example, so some clients just need a minority equity, and, and we'll try to facilitate that. But we haven't seen the non banks trying to come in and take our clients away at this split second. And you know I think our, our general approach is if we do a good job with our clients and take care of them and are close to them, and, and we we went on a real communication uh, effort with all of our CEOs as we went through this to make sure we understood what was happening with their companies. So we've seen. Some refinancing, we, we've refinanced some people out of other facilities, but it's, it's nothing very different from usual way. Well, that's good to hear from your perspective, I suppose. How are you handling lower and lower mortgage and interest rates in general? Well, you know, it, we, we've done a great job in lowering our cost of deposits. Um, and so we've held up on our, on our net, net interest margin pretty well. We've also, <laughs> Can we've I just also, intervene and say that that's bank for not paying anything on deposits <laughs> <laughs> well we pay we, we pay a little bit uh, but but our, our our net interest margin while under pressure is held up held up okay we, we've benefited from a very strong fee line so as you might have seen when we when we reported last week our PPNR line was, was quite strong and in fact it was a record level so we feel good about our overall PL. well that's good to hear now there's been sort of a lot of talk about whether there might be some consolidation. How is Citizens faring in terms of being able to ward off any outside interest or indeed maybe looking around if, if you're in that good of a position and, and trying to beef up what you have? Well, we don't, you know, we don't feel like we have to do a transaction you know, to, to be successful. And, I, you know, we're not really in discussions either way with anyone and we, we wouldn't talk about it anyway. So what we have done is we've, we've focused on acquiring smaller companies to, to basically beef up our offerings and our solution sets. So I've bought three M&A boutiques in the last two years. We bought a big mortgage company. We bought a wealth management company. So our, our strategy is really um, fill in acquisitions that, that, that broaden out our product suite. Yeah, so bolt-ons then. So who, what are these boutique companies and what do they specialize in? Uh, mergers and acquisitions. No, I mean, generally. what kinds of mergers so, and acquisitions? So, so one is a general industrial, um, and we bought them two years ago. They really do Midwestern industrial companies. Uh, we bought one in, down in Atlanta, which is really business services and, and, and other kinds of services. And we bought one in California, which is restaurants and franchise, franchise finance. So fascinating. And why did you land on those particular ones? We just saw that, well, one, they were leaders in their market. Um, and and we, I want to buy, 
M&A boutiques, which are which are really strong in very uh, narrow sectors. We're not going to compete with Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan in M&A, yeah. but we can compete in in narrow sectors. And frankly, we've been incredibly successful through the pandemic. I think we're we're closing an M&A deal a week right now, so it's it's gone quite well. That's really phenomenal. I want to hear more about these M&A deals. So one a week is is a distress M&A or, or, or what? No, no. You know, I think the, the perspective I'd give you is, is there are an awful lot of companies that are doing quite well and some are actually thriving through the pandemic. And as long as as long as a company's EBITDA isn't being impacted, we're, we're, we're seeing that, the, that people want to complete transactions that were in the pipeline. So they're not huge. I mean, they're anywhere from 50 million to 300 million in terms of valuation. So it's not the $10 billion, $10 billion deals. But you're seeing some of those happen also. So you know, we see some that have gone on hold because uh, you've had cash flows disrupted and we just have to figure out what, what a profile looks like on the back end. But a lot of them have, have moved forward. We've been frankly surprised at how many have moved forward. Yeah, I mean, it's the wheels of capitalism, isn't it? They just keep turning and it's really, really fascinating to watch and also a very good sign because you do want to, you know, the, 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 the wheels of industry to be well-oiled and turning, even at times like this. You just Completely hope that agree. that can be the, the case. Well, thank you very much, Don. Very interesting conversation and uh, good luck for the next couple of months. We'll be talking to you again before long. Don McCree is head of commercial banking at Citizens Bank and you heard him so much going on in the capital markets these days. It's, it's not all just um, stagnancy and doom and gloom and waiting for a stimulus the wheels of capitalism do continue to turn so let's bring in george ferguson now senior aerospace defense and airlines analyst with bloomberg intelligence george what i found interesting about that conversation was that gary kelly seems to be so optimistic that it looks like he's still almost expecting some kind of targeted stimulus somewhere he does. Uh, I found that interesting as well. It seems to me I'm in the camp that we probably don't see a stimulus package for the airlines um, until next year if we get one at all. I really don't see anything happening in a lame duck session. I sense that potentially the Republicans don't, uh, you know, don't really see a need to be stimulating parts of the economy like the airlines. Uh, and so I think I think the best case would be a, a Democratic win for the airlines. Democratic win at in November, and then they could potentially get some stimulus into, into early next year. Well, see, that's funny, because I would have thought that if the Democrats win, that it would not be politically expedient for them to be seen to be, quote-unquote, bailing out particular industries, and that, in fact, the Republicans would be more likely to do targeted sim- stimulus. How do you get to Democrats bailing out airlines? Uh, I, I just think uh, I think the unionized labor force is one that they have, um, you know, they have uh, strong support from. Mm. And they and they in turn want to continue to support, and I use some of the uh, you know Pat Toomey, a Republican from uh, Pennsylvania, is our, is on the record as saying the airlines sh- shouldn't be providing any more stimulus. So I, I kind of use I guess those two uh, you know benchmarks as well as I think Republicans are more concerned about uh, deficit spending, and I think there's a little bit less concern about that. And that certainly will come back to the fore if indeed there is a transfer of power and you know it because right now it's uh, it's not that popular to talk about the deficit, but it will be soon if the Republicans aren't in power still. So, George, is Gary Kelly a little bit misguided or can he get enough liquidity? Can he wait until next year until something comes? Yeah, so, you know, Gary Kelly has plenty of liquidity. I mean, he's... Uh, Southwest is in one of the best positions of any U.S. airline uh, to weather this storm. They have a lot of cash. They were, I think, it's somewhere around 15 billion uh, cash. They reported this morning. 
uh, and they have less debt than that. You know, when we even we look at all the U.S. airlines, we see them all able to survive into into summer 2021. Uh, I think they've all sort of targeted that area late next year as being a time when they think demand's going to hopefully start to recover. Uh, so I think it, for Gary, it's more a question of whether or not, you know, as he as he mentioned, whether or not he's going to push his employees through, you know, taking pay cuts and things like that and furloughing more employees. And his real concern, I think, about, you know, uh, an unsettled environment at Southwest is he has to make those moves to drive down, you know, drive down costs and get to a zero cash burn. George, I'd love to have your thoughts on Boeing and the 737 MAX getting back up in the air. We were waiting for it for so long and so long, and suddenly it's it's all happening. Yes, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, Boeing, Boeing has had some challenges, but the airplane is an absolutely viable airplane, and I think Boeing really got focused on getting that airplane back in the air. It's been a while, but we, we think it's going to be approved by the FAA, you know, by end of year this year. Or early next year, so I think Gary's going to be having that discussion more intensely now about when he really wants all those airplanes that Boeing has built for him, because it's, it's uh, again, we see it sort of late this year, early next year, back in service. Can you give us an update on orders? So there was a big order book, and then it was slowly, you know, lines in that book were getting crossed out as certain airlines, A, you know, got hit by the pandemic, but B, weren't maybe willing fully to wait for Boeing. Where are we at now for Boeing? Yeah, I mean, last time we looked at the 737 MAX, I'm going to give you a rough number. It's around 5,000. The challenge with the order book is exactly like you heard this morning, right? Gary Kelly wouldn't go on record as to what he was going to do in that order book, and he said he would continue to talk to to Boeing. Now, look, we know over time Gary will need airplanes, and he's he's solely a Boeing shop. And when the world looks better, Gary will go to Boeing, I need airplanes, I need airplanes sooner because I got great demand. And he'll want Boeing to give him those airplanes. And so Boeing's going to come to him at this time and say, look, we have a problem. Right? We've got a lot of airplanes stacked up. We need to deliver. We need the cash flow. We need you to support us through this downturn. So that negotiation, and, and Gary Kelly is one of the most important customers for Boeing. Mm. That conversation is going on throughout that Boeing order book you know, with, with different sort of intensities. So it's really hard to plumb what portion of those of those orders could go away or not. We think a lot of them will just be deferred. And what will happen is Boeing and Airbus, Airbus will be in the same boat with their customers. We'll have to lower build rates in 2021 as they manage, manage a slower airline recovery. And their customers say, look, I just can't take those airplanes this year. So we don't see a lot of unwinding of the books, but we see a lot of deferrals in the books. George, we went into this thing with, you know, close on 20 airlines. We're now at, what, 17, I think. Can you give us an update on, on where we are and who didn't survive? Uh, I'm sorry, say that again. I, I... We went into the pandemic with a couple of more airlines than, than are, ex- are in existence now, basically, oh, you know, around it, the yeah. world. Can you yeah. give us an update? Well, I mean, right, right now, you know, right now I don't think we've seen anybody really liquidated and taken out of the game yet. So, you know, th- there may be one or two I'm, I'm missing. But we know we have hot spots of problems. You know, down in South America, we had LATAM and Avianca, you know, declare bankruptcy and restructure their companies, which if, if demand doesn't improve long term, more airlines will need to go through that bankruptcy and lay off their debt and get rid of their airplanes. So we saw them. We know Norwegian out in Europe is, is having challenges and cut operations 
80-some percent, but is still limping along. We have a number of airlines around the world that are kind of limping through. We know Air Asia out in Malaysia is having big problems. They're a big buyer of Airbus A320, A320s and A330s, or Air Asia X longer haul um, uh, portion of that airline. So we see it cropping up, but remember, we're now coming into winter season. And so winter season is the really difficult uh, travel season. And I think now is where we're going to start to see even more failures as airlines don't see this demand come in. Cash flow is weak and they go into the weaker season. But again, airlines have a great propensity to sort of um, limp along, go through a bankruptcy restructuring and continue. I think what we'll really watch, though, is the amount of uh, capacity that comes out of the marketplace, right? These airplanes have to leave these airlines uh, because they don't have the they don't have the demand to fly them, and the question will start to become: What do we do with all these airplanes? We'll t- and the market will tear a bunch of them down, but we'll be watching for capacity to come out of these global airlines. Gosh, those car parks in Phoenix or those airplane parks in Phoenix are going to get pretty full if they're not already. George, thank you so much. George Ferguson, Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us there. All right, it is time for our weekly visit with Barry Whittles, Bloomberg Opinion Columnist. We're always thrilled to have him on. And Barry, I want your take on things because you're so learned and you also read just voraciously about the market. And you're also in the market as well. So you've got people's money and your money you know, at risk. We've heard a lot of different opinions about what's going on here in the last week. And I'm talking about people like Bill Miller, for example, talking uh, in his note about it and that getting disseminated. We had Eric Schatzker talking to Boaz Weinstein today. A lot of big names are trying to figure out the environment. What have you taken away from them? Who are the best thinkers on this? Wow, that's such a challenging question. There we go. Um, You know, I think that, and my vantage point is having sat with many of these people for Masters in Business interviews for the podcast, each of these people have a a somewhat unique um, perspective, but a a much more um, precise specialty. So... When I'm talking to Howard Marks, I'm talking to him about two things. I'm talking to him about the thinking process, how do you make decisions, how do you analyze things, as well as the specifics of distressed debt. Um, This weekend's guest is Ray Dalio from, from Bridgewater Associates. He's a big macro thinker, so when I'm talking to Ray, I want to ask him about different asset classes, what do you do now that rates are so low? What do you do with gold? What do you do? You know, those sort of questions. But at the same time, I want to understand how he looks at the world. And I know he's he's not just an investor, but a historian and someone whose thought process is really, what does the history tell us about this particular area? Um, so, so we were talking uh, for, for this week's show about the pandemic and the lockdown and how unique this is, and his answer is, yeah, it's unique in your lifetime, but you look back a few hundred years, and you could see examples of things that have happened before. We've had um, central banks create a lot of, um, uh, take rates down to zero. We've had governments uh, have all sorts of debt be monetized. We've seen the wealth gap expand in prior cycles, and we've seen um, a rising power challenge the established um, powers that be, all these things that we're experiencing today 
they've all happened before, sometimes separately, sometimes together. And, and so it's that whole what drives their thought process before they get to their specific um, expertise that yeah. really is quite fascinating. And I mean, Barry, honestly, you know, wouldn't you argue that not only has it happened before, but it happens roughly once every 10 years. So, I mean, we had the great financial crisis 10 years ago in terms of pandemics. We, we had one 20 years ago. And I mean, these things happen. We're very likely right. to have a rolling series of these for the rest of our lifetimes, particularly at a time when global thought systems are fragmenting and disintegrating. And, you know, the world that worked for a while has not been working for a long time so so that's why you want these guys' opinions on things you want to see how they're thinking about it so so that's ray dalio those who specialize in treasury investing though may have a different opinion on this because it certainly is the greatest expansion it's even greater than the great financial crisis of um you know monetary policy tools and um just the, the monetary base that we've ever seen across the world Right. Dalio says you have to go back to 1933 to find um, a a central bank like the U.S. taking rates down to zero. But when you look at the balance sheet of the – by the way, the joke about that was I guess modern monetary theory ain't so modern because the the version of it that that we're sort of experiencing uh, goes back to 1933. Um, But but to your point about how cyclical all these things are and how – you know, unprecedented is is a bad word because unprecedented things happen all the time. I think I, I, I say the same thing every time I hear someone say it's a hundred year flood. It's like, yeah, we but we get them every ten years. Maybe we should stop calling these things that come along ten or more times a century. Maybe we should stop calling them hundred year floods. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the people that do do you do you take them seriously? So uh, I, I almost think of it as a verbal tick. Uh, the, the phrase, you know, you ever speak to someone who every other sentence is, you know, we have these unthinking, unconscious verbal ticks. Uh, market hates uncertainty is probably the one that's most dominant these days. And I think we should really stop and carefully consider what we say and, and try to avoid cliches. Market hates uncertainty is a perfect example. Markets thrive on uncertainty. Anytime there's certainty, there isn't someone to take the other side of your trade. There, there has to be, by definition, uncertainty about the future. It's inherently unknown, and therefore, markets are a mechanism to make sense out of uncertainty. Given what's been going on in the markets lately, um, I, I love the narrative that we've been hearing lately that the possibility of a lack of resolution of, of, of the presidential contest on November 3rd is, has been all the uncertainty. Uh, let, let me point out that in 2000, um, Bush v. Gore wasn't resolved till I think it was December 12th or December 13th. And if you really want to be a historian, you could go back to the election of 1800, which was an electoral college tie. It was a dead heat. When that happens, it gets thrown to the House, and each state gets a, uh, a vote in the House of Representatives. Each state's um, congressional delegation gets one vote, plus, plus the various um, um, territories and, and non-states. And, and so that's 
in the event of an electoral college tie, uh, the House is the final determiner. So all these things that look like they're so unique in one-offs, uh, we've experienced some form of them in the past. Yeah, I mean, it's that old joke on Wall Street, right, that the, the interns or the, the newbies haven't seen this before and, and they have no idea what they're in for. But, you know, it, it really does help to live through a couple of them, I think, and you see how markets react and how they work. And and, and you have minor ones, you know, in the meantime. So, for example, when remember when, when, when the credit rating was, was downgraded for the U.S.? That was a little bit of a... a minor shock to the system as well so uh, it's all and, practice and yet, it, yet it did nothing to the, exactly. to the treasury market other than the news broke there was a little wobble for a couple of minutes and then the bull market in treasuries continued for another you know, yep. ongoing we I, arguably it still hasn't ended Barry, thank you. Always fun to have a chat. Barry Rittles, do tune in to his Masters in Business podcast. He also makes frequent appearances here on Bloomberg Radio and, of course, on Bloomberg Television in the mornings. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.